You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. Recently named one of Christianity Today's 12 podcasts you don't want to miss, 2021, I'm your host, Marty Duran. Hey everyone, if you're a regular listener to Uncommentary, you may know that we were recently named one of the 12 podcasts you don't want to miss by Christianity Today. We're really happy about that. Uh, I want to talk to you if you've been listening, but you haven't yet become a supporter through Patreon or PayPal. Uh, it's really helpful, and I'm going to do a pledge drive. I'm hearkening back to the old days. So right now there are about 32 or 34 regular monthly supporters for Uncommentary, and then every month I'll pick up maybe one or two additional gifts of support through PayPal. So I want to encourage you, if you've yet to jump on that particular bandwagon, Every episode that doesn't have an episode sponsor, and that's like 90% of them, is sponsored by my Patreon uh, group and the PayPal supporters. So I encourage you to join that little band, patreon.com slash uncommentary or paypal.me slash uncommentary pod if you'd like to give just a one-time gift. Now, at Patreon, you can support paper, uh, support uncommentary for only a couple of bucks a month if that's your limit. Uh, you can go to four or five or 10 or 20 or something like that. If you're feeling especially generous or if you've been blessed in some big way, uh, I'll take it and put it to good use. But I want to encourage you over the next six weeks or so to become a supporter through Patreon or through PayPal. Thanks a lot. There are a few more revered writers in evangelical circles anyway than C.S. Lewis, uh, the author of Chronicles of Narnia, Screwtape Letters, the Space Trilogy, and others, uh, he is widely referenced and recommended uh, across the, the landscape. So it was, it's my pleasure today to have uh, Dr. Hal Poe, who teaches at Union, Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, um, to talk about the second in his trilogy of a biography of C.S. Lewis. And so this is the middle part of Lewis's life and does cover the time of his conversion which we talk about in some length. And so uh, I hope this is um, of interest to you. I hope it's exciting. Uh, so many of you probably have read Lewis and are familiar with Lewis, but don't know the bio- biographical section of Lewis. And so I hope this is uh, fun for you and educational as well. Well, everyone, thanks for joining me again today. Uh, we're not in Narnia, but we do have somebody who knows. We actually have two people who know something about Narnia. But one of them is a published author, and his name is Hal Poe, and he is in the middle volume of a biographical series of C.S. Lewis, and I am really excited to have you. Now, you're at Union, and you also are like literary heritage. Is that correct? Well, to a certain degree, um, I I am a cousin of Edgar Allan Poe, if that's what you mean. That is exactly. I remember you telling that story before. Now, do you have any ravens at home? Do you like raise them for hobbies? Uh, don't, they're not, they're too tough to eat. So I, I let them go their own way. <laughs> oh man. Well, Dr. Hal Poe, thanks for being on commentary today. Thank you for having me. So folks that are listening, uh, you know, that it's usually just me and one other person, sometimes me and some, uh, and a group of folks in a round table type situation. Uh, but when I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Poe about his book, which is called The Making of C.S. Lewis from Atheist to Apologist, 1918 to 1945. 
the second of a trilogy, I immediately thought about my friend, Aaron Earls, who is a huge CS Lewis fan. And he and I've had conversations and I've listened to him in one-sided conversations, talk about CS Lewis before. Uh, so I asked him to come on and, and co-host with me on this episode, because he'll have some insightful questions that I would never think to ask. Uh, so Aaron Earls, welcome to Uncommentary. Thanks, Morning. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Aaron, what do you do for a living? Do you do you have a job? I do have a job besides just reading Lewis books and talking about him all the time. Uh, I work at uh, Lifeway in the communications department, specifically right now working with Lifeway Research, handling the website and social media for it. So uh, I get to interact with a lot of uh, research on evangelicalism and churches and those kind of things. But just in my spare time, I like to do a lot of, of reading in, in Narnia and Lewis stuff. So Excellent. Well, how... Um most of my most of my listeners, I think, are going to be familiar with C.S. Lewis. The name will not surprise them. They're familiar with his works to some degree. Um, but this is the second volume in what I think is going to be a trilogy. So um, I thought maybe you were going to go into Robert Caro territory with the Lyndon B. Johnson series and just wear out like five multi-hundred page volumes. That would be pretty awesome. <laughs> oh, too much, too much, too much, too much. Um, but since we are starting in the middle kind of, of his life, um, why don't you give a little bit of background about Lewis, uh, up to where this book starts, and then we'll kind of go into some details about the book. Uh, I had not planned on writing a three volume biography of Lewis. And, uh, the, the first volume, uh, was simply uh, an exploration of his childhood and teenage years because it was. Uh, during those years that Lewis developed most of the preferences he had in life for the things he liked, the things he didn't like, simple things like those long walks he would take, mm. 12, 15, 20-mile walks um, in a day, and, and to walk all the way across England, um, that was something he started doing as a as a teenager as an alternative to participating in the uh, group sports at oh. those dreadful boarding schools he went to. Um, and also his reading preferences. Uh, in the evenings, uh, for pleasure, he read the great classics. And the reason he was able to do a, 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 an English literature degree at Oxford in one year was not simply because he was smart, and he was smart, but um, he had already done all of the reading while he was a teenager uh, in his pleasure reading. <laughs> and so he, he formed those, those sorts of interests um, uh, as a teenager. And, and he also um, developed many of the questions that would be driving him in his conversion, uh, conversion process. Mm. So, those years were, were critical in his formation. He became a committed atheist as a teenager, ah. but also his, his atheism created the kinds of questions that, in a sense, forced him to finally uh, surrender to Christ. So it's, um, that was the only book I'd planned on writing. Gotcha. But then I realized, well, to really understand the impact of those teenage years, you have to write the next section to show um, what impact it had on his um, professional career as a, a literary critic, a professor of uh, literature, and what 
uh, impact it had on his conversion mm-hmm. and what impact it had on all of his apologetics. And all of those are tied together. There's a, 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 a sort of a, a seamless whole. They're mm-hmm. related to one another. Um, Aaron, get a question ready. I'm going to ask one and then um, I want you to jump in. Uh, I want to, I want to hear about his, uh, his choice of atheism. Let me say it that way. My curiosity is this, did he reject uh, a, a, a cultural faith that he had been taught or was he raised in a non Christian environment where it was natural for him to, uh, become an atheist? He was raised in church. His grandfather was the rector at their local parish church. Mm -hmm. And so he was in church every Sunday, Um, but it was for him a cultural Christianity. It's what Protestants did in Northern Ireland in Belfast uh, during the Edwardian age. Um, And so he knew the Bible. He was raised hearing scripture, memorizing scripture. So he had a lot of content, but um, uh, two important things happened. Um, in, in his opting for atheism. One was his mother died of cancer when he was nine years old. Mm. And um, he didn't mention that a lot in his, his published writing, but in letters, he would mention the fact that this was really the beginning of his um, uh, flirtation with atheism. Why did God let my mother die? Mm-hmm. And so this is the background to his book, The Problem of Pain, and really the informs um, the gr- uh, grief observed. Um, but then the other important thing that happened um, occurred when he was in, in school studying Latin, and um, they were reading the, the old texts uh, and discussing uh, Greek and Roman mythology, and the teachers were talking about all of these are just made-up stories to explain natural phenomena. And it occurred to him, well, how is that different from the Bible? Mm -hmm. Uh, These are probably just made up stories explaining natural phenomena as well. And so he, that was the beginning of his movement towards um, uh, naturalistic materialism, that there's just a physical world. And, um, and he became quite comfortable with that uh, because his tutor, W.T. Kirkpatrick, with whom he lived for a little over two years, um, was a committed um, materialist. And uh, he gave Lewis the uh, intellectual underpinnings he needed to sustain a materialistic worldview, that there's nothing that exists except matter. Mm -hmm. And um, nothing exists besides matter, what we can know with our senses. Um, And that's, that's where he was when he went away to war um, as a, what, 19-year-old uh, second lieutenant to the trenches of France. Uh, so one of the things I, I noticed kind of in the beginning of the second book, you mentioned Lewis talking with the local priest who was an atheist, which was an interesting thing in and of itself, <laughs> uh, and how that conversation kind of caused Lewis to be disgusted, you know, just wanted to reject the whole idea of immortality. And so I was curious kind of what other moments kind of were there like that, that, you know, kind of after his return from war that kind of helped 
push him away from God. But then you also mentioned how some of those same, very same things that kind of led him into atheism kind of drew him back to the, the Christianity of his childhood. Um, so just kind of both that, like, you know, what are some things that maybe pushed him away from the faith? Then how did those things also play a role in his bringing you know, coming back to, to, to Christianity? Yes, it's fascinating. He, um, the, uh, the circle of friends included this Irishman who was Church of England, um, and he was an atheist, but he had to continue being a priest because it was his only livelihood. Wow. And so he was in it for the money and um, very cynical about it. Um, uh, loved to talk theology, just didn't believe it. And um, included in that circle was um, uh, Mrs. Moore's brother, um, Dr. Askins. Um, Janie Moore was the mother of... Uh, a friend of Lewis's from his um, just before he entered the, uh, the, the war. And uh, the agreement between those friends was that if one of us dies, the other will take care of the, uh, of the um, uh, parents of the one who died. So Lewis was taking care of Mrs. Moore uh, from the end of world war one, because his friend Patty Moore died in the war from the end of world war one until 1951. So for, uh, 30 years. Um, and she had quite a, quite a family. Um, one of whom, um, uh, uh, a brother, um, relocated to Oxford and he was another, uh, atheist. Um, but they talked theology all the time. And this brother, uh, is the one who went mad and, um, uh, Lewis was sitting up with him nights and he was having, um, uh, hallucinations and demons and hell was opening up and all sorts of horrors. Mm -hmm. And this, um, this experience made Lewis even more skeptical of an afterlife. And he was thinking it was all uh, psychological phenomena, all, all in your head. Mm. And at that time he <laughs> was reading, um, well, uh, Freud was, was the latest thing. Psychology was fashionable and he was reading lots of psychology. He, he read a number of books and he started keeping a diary um, in part to um, psychoanalyze himself, to keep track of his experiences. So I don't have enough pages. Yeah. And so uh, he, he had all of that going on. So that was put, pulling him away. Um, but then... Um, all of his friends who were atheists loved to talk about religion. It is just phenomenal to me um, that this tended to be how every conversation wound up. And um, he read the Pilgrim's Progress a number of times. He'd read it over and mm. over. So you, you had this, this um, contradictory um, uh, intellectual life going on. And um, that contradiction um, shows up in a lot of different ways. The kind of story that Lewis most loved from his teenage years, um, he found it in a number of places. First place he found it was William Morris's uh, The Well at the End of the World. And then he found it in uh, Mallory's um, story of the quest for the Holy Grail. 
Then he found it in uh, Spencer's The Fairy Queen, written in, what, about 1596. Then he found it again in um, um, George MacDonald's Fantasties. Mm. And he mentions it in in, uh, Surprised by Joy. It's the story of the person who journeys to the end of the world, uh, fights the unbeatable foe, and... um, risks all, sacrifices all in order to obtain that which is unobtainable. And in the Gospels, it's the pearl of great Mm -hmm. price. Um, And this story absolutely gripped him, this plot, and he couldn't get enough of it. And he read it over and over. And of course, it's the plot of the Pilgrim's uh, Progress, Mm -hmm. in which you abandon the city of destruction and you go to the end of the world, which is, in fact, um, the celestial city. So um, this story uh, drove his um, interest in literature and thus doing a degree in literature and thus becoming a fellow who taught medieval literature. And uh, this story, this plot line was at the center of it. And... um, uh, so you've got that going on. And in the context of this, this kind of story, you have all sorts of values, um, uh, humility, and he was a very prideful person, uh, courage, um, duty. And he loved these values, though he didn't manifest them himself. And um, this whole idea of right and wrong. And then he was confronted with a dreadful dilemma. And it's that you can't really have right and wrong or any other values in a materialistic universe. Mm -hmm. In a materialistic universe, all you've got is matter. Nothing is right or wrong, good or bad, uh, beautiful or ugly. Things just are. And to have value, it's got to come from somewhere outside of matter. And that's when he grudgingly shifted his philosophy from pure materialism to idealism, which is the idea that there are ideas that exist free of matter. <laughs> and um, But then once you've got that, you've got to figure out, well, where, where do those ideas come from? And it was just, he was done for. Once he started asking these questions, his conversion was inevitable. Now, was this, was the, the Inklings period during this, his relationship with Tolkien, this was, that was after? The, the, the Inklings did not form until after he was a Christian. Okay. This would have all been taking place in the 1920s. And, um, um, so this series of questions and, and problems, Um, And it was a long, slow conversion, Mm -hmm. a grudging conversion. (laughs) I mean, it's no wonder that he said, you know, that, you know, an atheist, a good atheist can't be too careful about what he reads because knowing (laughs) his own conversion, how much the things that he read led up to that. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And um, one of the things I realized in in working on this book, he gives uh, an account of his conversion that he wrote in the mid 1950s, surprised by joy. Um, but he had written an earlier version of it as an allegory, like the Pilgrim's Progress. That's hmm. pretty inaccessible to most modern people because 
most of us really just can't figure out how allegory works. This, this, where everything is veiled in um, uh, sort of a symbolic logic. Um, but he also gave it, and it's not quite as apparent in his radio broadcasts that were published as Mere Christianity. And Mere Christianity actually takes you step by step, not through a logical argument for the existence of God, but it takes you step by step through the reasons Lewis abandoned atheism Mm. and finally had to accept that Jesus Christ was not just a great teacher, but is in fact the son of God. Folks, listening to Uncommentary with my guest today, Hal Poe, and we're talking about his book, The Making of C.S. Lewis, From Atheist to Apologist, 1918 to 1945, and we'll be right back after this. If you've been listening to Uncommentary for any length of time, you've heard me talk about Hearts and Minds books. They're my favorite independent bookstore located in Pennsylvania, owned by Byron Borger. I hope you'll give them a try, heartsandmindsbooks.com. Every book I've ever ordered from Hearts and Minds has come carefully wrapped in uh, brown wrapping paper, like packaging paper. Every single book. Nothing's just thrown in a box with a pa- with a thing of bubble wrap and shipped to you in the hopes that it gets there in some kind of condition that it's still worth reading. You never have to worry about that with Byron. So I encourage you to try out Hearts and Minds Books. Go to heartsandmindsbooks.com. And let them know what you need. Mention on commentary, and if he can, he'll give you a discount on the book that you order. Thanks a lot for listening and support Hearts and Minds Books. Uh, one kind of interesting question in Lewis scholarship uh, is the date of his conversion. So, to Lewis himself, places that in the spring of twenty nine, as we're talking about his conversion. But Alistair McGrath and other scholars have kind of put it a little bit later than that. So, as you were doing your research, kind of where did you place? and see like this is the moment Lewis converted uh, and kind of what factors were really at, at work in that moment of him realizing, you know, Jesus was it and embrace embracing Christianity. Uh, yes. Um, McGrath is right. Um, in uh, prior to McGrath, uh, everyone had just relied on what Lewis said and surprised by joy that in, in um, 1929, he, um, believed that God existed. He, he grudgingly admitted, yes, God exists. He wasn't a Christian yet. He was a theist, but not yet a Christian. Um, and um, the, the problem uh, is that Lewis um, simply had no mind for dates and chronology. Um, numbers baffled him. And um, he, his, the facts are correct about what happened. But uh, chronology eluded him. He mentions this a number of times in his letters, and his brother, Warney, mentions it uh, a number of times in his diary and in his memoir of Lewis. I knew there was um, a reason we were so connected with that, so <laughs> I, I shared that, that confusion. And um, it, it, the, um, that 1929 era is not the only one. It's, uh, McGrath points that out. I'll point out a few in, in um, this book. For instance, in uh, Surprised by Joy, he talks about the last critical steps to his conversion, um, and he mentions uh, three things that that happened, but actually, they didn't happen in 1929 or 1930. They happened in 1924, Um, between March the 4th and March the 8th in a five-day period. He had a sudden experience of joy, that that mystical 
religious experience that gripped him from the outside that he uh, encountered a number of times in life. But then um, uh, several other things happened. He was um, reading Euripides uh, just to keep his Greek up. And in the reading of uh, one of uh, plays by Euripides, um, he had, he rethought this whole business of, um, of uh, Greek mythology and the way mythology works and uh, that maybe his teachers had been wrong um, about mythology being um, strictly unreal made up stuff. And um, he read a book by uh, Samuel Alexander, Space, Time, and Deity, in which um, Alexander makes the distinction between having an experience and thinking about the experience. And you can't have the experience and think about the experience at the same time. Once you start thinking about it, you withdraw from the experience. And um, Lewis thought this was extremely important because he'd been trying to work up this experience of joy and he couldn't do it. He could think about it, but he couldn't cause it to happen. Hmm. And that led him to believe that joy was not simply an internal psychological experience of his own, that it was in fact an objective experience um, from the outside. And then he also started reading GK Chesterton. And so um, in terms of chronology, they happened years before his conversion, but in terms of their significance, these things happened, but their significance didn't click in until 1929-1930, when he was having a conversation with um, Tolkien and Hugo Dyson about mythology and and, um, uh, your listeners may or may not be familiar with this famous um, late night talk in which Lewis said, well, the, he, he understood God, he accepted the existence of God, but the idea of Jesus just didn't fit in. He couldn't see why the death of Jesus meant anything. And it seemed to him like it was just the same old mythology of the dying and rising God that you find in every culture. And um, as a result of the conversation, Lewis realized that the difference between Jesus and all the other mythologies of the dying and rising God, like Baal, Osiris, Balder, you find it all over the the map. Uh, Tolkien said, yes, it's it's just like all the others. The only difference is this is the one that actually happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, that struck Lewis powerfully. And just a few days later, um, he realized <laughs> on a on a trip to the zoo while riding in the sidecar of his brother's motorcycle that, oh, my goodness, he really did believe Jesus is the son of God. So um, long drawn out conversion, but step by step dealing with little problems. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that I don't know the answer to, uh, and that is this was was Lewis well-known as an atheist? Was he even well-known? I mean, he's obviously a professor and he's got some amount of notoriety in that regard, but was he a personality at the time uh, of his conversion known for his atheism? Um, 
I don't remember reading that he was like a Christopher Hitchens type of strident atheist trying to convince everyone else of atheism. I don't remember reading about that, but was there that, Hey, he's well-known. Was there like in, in culture would have been like Saul being saved all of a sudden CS Lewis is saved and nobody believes it. Uh, no, he would have been an unknown person. Okay. Um, he was known around Oxford in some circles. Um, but just a typical Oxonian in those days, just one of the crowd, like everybody else. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was part of, he was a man of his time. He was a man of his culture, spirit of the age, all of that sort of thing. He didn't become well known until he published, um, the allegory of love in 1936, which is his study of, um, medieval allegorical courtly love poetry, which is essentially a study of that literature that he fell in love with as a teenager. Okay. And in that book, you'll find the seed of almost everything else he writes. Um, I, I say in, in this biography that the allegory of love is the only book C.S. Lewis ever wrote. All the others are just sort of footnotes to it. Uh, they all, they're the overflow from it. Mm -hmm. And you'll find the Chronicles of Narnia in there. You'll find um, Abolition of Man, The Four Loves, just on and on and on. Um, the um, cosmology of his, of his science fiction mm. trilogy. Um, so he, he was not well known when he was an atheist. Okay. One of the, the stories that you, um, I think, talk about in this book and, and revealed a little bit before the book came out, but one that I think you were the only one to, to discover is about Lewis working for MI6 uh, for the British <laughs> spy agency. Um, tell us a little bit how, how you found out about that and kind of what Lewis's role was with MI6. Yes. And Lewis would not have known he was working for MI6. <laughs> um, all he knew was that the, the British government wanted to make radio, radio broadcasts to Iceland and Britain had invaded Iceland the same day that Hitler invaded uh, the low countries in Europe, May the 10th. Well, I did not know uh, that. 1940, uh, uh, 1940. And so um, Britain was occupying Iceland so that Hitler could not occupy it. Hitler had already seized Denmark, and Iceland was part of Denmark, the same way Hawaii is part of the United States. And so, um, so the British were the aggressors, but they wanted to be friends with the people of Iceland, and they asked Lewis to do a radio talk about, um, um, well, the, the Norse influence on English literature. <laughs> And so he, he did. He made the recording in um, probably in May of 1941. Um, now, the record, it was done on, on 78 RPM records, two discs, four sides. Um, and I bought uh, the, the, the record I have on eBay. Um, it was sold by a, um, a, a used book dealer in Reykjavik, Iceland. So the record did make its way to Iceland. May have been broadcast, may not have been broadcast. We really have no record of what happened. I've written to MI6 to find out. Uh, and their reply is that the file is closed. 
So they do have information, but they ain't saying. What they're they're just going to send you a copy of The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah. So, um, so no, I, I did an article for Christianity Today, and of course, uh, authors have no um, say over the headlines and the um, <laughs> subheadings that are given. <laughs> and the headline was something inflammatory, like C.S. Lewis was a secret agent. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was. Um, so he he was he would not have seen himself or understood himself to be a secret agent, but he did perform. Uh, he had a, a profound sense of duty during the war to do what he could for the war effort. He called it his war work, and so he lectured it at, at uh, RAF bases and and his radio broadcasts and all of that sort of thing it was part of his war work. And so his agreement to do this would have been part of that. Um, uh, general theme. And he did his, his radio broadcast for the BBC later that year. So this would have been his first effort at a, at a broadcast. Mm. Wow. Aaron, what you got? Uh, the, so the speaking of kind of his, his war effort and his relationship with the British government. Um, one of the things that fascinated me was to read about how Lewis um, turned down an, an offer uh, the, what the, the order under whatever knighthood is for the British government turned that down from Churchill because he was he said he was worried about kind of how that would impact uh, his perception among those who disagree with Churchill's politics. So I was just curious, kind of a little bit behind that story or, or what Lewis was was thinking and kind of his relationship with the government and how he viewed that with his faith. Uh, yes, that didn't happen during the war years. That happened during. Uh, Churchill's second term okay. as prime minister, which came in the 1950s. Um, and as soon as uh, Churchill came to office again, after the long Attlee uh, labor government, um, the, it, the custom in Britain is that the um, prime minister will propose to the queen people who should receive honors and recognitions and um, there's a birthday honors list and I think a Christmas honors list. Lewis was proposed for the Christmas honors list as soon as Churchill came to power. Um, and it was um, not a knighthood, but Order of the British Empire, mm -hmm. the OBE, which is just under a knighthood. And Lewis, um, he would have had a very difficult time turning it down, but he did turn it down. Because um, by then, he really did have a lot of detractors. And, um, and the idea that um, if he accepted a, uh, an OBE from the conservative government, then it would signal that all of his religious talk was really just conservative political propaganda. Wow. And he did not want um, the Christian faith perceived to be mingled in any way with politics. Mm. Um, and we've got a different sort of attitude today in the United CS, States. <clears throat> but uh, Lewis was, was quite concerned about that, to keep complete distance between uh, faith and politics. Otherwise, you cannot critique the politics. Mm. And the politics always wants to take advantage of, of the faith. Um, so that was his, that was his decision. It would have been, it would have been very painful for him to turn it down. 
I hadn't anticipated ending there, but honestly, I think that's a really good place to land the plane um, because of how differently we experience that where, where we are in this moment in time. And for the last several decades, the idea of trying to live and and keep faith distinguished from politics um, is, is something worth exploring, I think. And knowing that he attempted that even to the point of turning down well, I guess what we would say, the Presidential Medal of Freedom uh, over yeah. on this side of the pond uh, is quite highly, highly regarded. Yes. Yeah. To be an OBE. Well, how, what is the name of the first volume in this series? The first volume is Becoming C.S. Lewis, a biography of young Jack Lewis, 1898 to 1918. All right. And this one is The Making of C.S. Lewis. And do you have a proposed title for the upcoming third volume? Yeah, the third volume, which will come out this time next year, it's already finished and in the hands of Crossway, uh, The Completion of C.S. Lewis, From Bachelor to Widower. Oh, wow. 1945 to 1963. Excellent. Well, you folks can pick up the first two uh, anywhere. Don't forget to check with Byron at Hearts and Minds Books and see what he can do for you there. And it's available everywhere else. And, uh, Hal, thanks so much for hanging out today. And Aaron, thank you as well for hanging out. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Oh, and by the way, folks, Hal, you're not on the Twitters, are you? No. Okay. But Aaron is and Aaron in honor of CS Lewis. Why don't you tell everybody what your handle is on Twitter? It is at wardrobe door at wardrobe door. And he is the man. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. And thank you all for showing up. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review, and whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or Castbox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solidale Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Uncommentary Podcast.